Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll kind of dive into this. Lord, thank you so much for the country in which we live. I pray that you would bless our leaders. I pray that you would turn their hearts and their minds to your will and your purpose. I pray that they would rule justly and in a sense of responsibility. Father, I pray that we might be able to live out the lessons that we will learn today as we look at how we behave toward ruling authorities in this world. Father, thank you for this congregation and this group of people and believers. I pray your blessings on them. I pray that you would comfort those who mourn. I pray you would heal those who are struggling. And I pray, Lord, that we would always be grateful. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is kind of amazing because this uh, series was mapped out you know, about three months ago, you know, right before we started, kind of mapped out the weeks. So we're in Romans chapter 13. This is probably the preeminent text on politics and Christians, and it is the day after the midterm elections. I mean, you couldn't have planned that. I wish I could tell you I was that smart, but I'm not that smart. So it seems like just a political season. It's a good time for us. Let me do a brief recap. I won't go through the whole book of Romans, but the, uh, basically the first six chapters in particular, maybe the first eight, are just a brilliant explanation of what is the gospel. Remember the word gospel just means good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is a historical event. It is what God did in the middle of history in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And that has huge, world-altering, life-changing implications for us. And that's what the first part of the book of Romans talks about, is how to understand what is this good news. Then we went into chapters 9 through 11, which are uh, kind of more of God's redemptive plan. And in our last lesson, I'll just give you a couple of verses. Chapter 12 is a hinge. It turns from explaining what the gospel is to what then does that mean for us? And so in chapter 12, for example, 1 and 2 says this, therefore, in other words, in light of all this good news about the gospel, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So chapter 12 says this renewing of your mind, these implications of what Jesus did and my placing my trust in what Jesus did has life-altering implications. That's what chapters 12 through 16 are about. And that's the rest of the book of Romans. So in chapter 12, uh, we talked about how to treat one another in certain ways. And here's what Tom Schreiner says as you kind of segue. Tom Schreiner says this, he says, giving oneself holy to God and being transformed in one's thinking. Well, that's basically what the first uh, 12 chapters are about. It's transforming our mind in light of this new truth and reality of what Jesus has done, then we will change the way we view everything. He says, once you've given yourself wholly to God, being transformed in your thinking is also expressed in how one relates to governing authorities. Believers express their commitment to God in how they relate to rulers and the law and the state. So it's interesting in that mo most religions generally want a piece of your life. Some would, would like to invade all areas of your life. Christianity is a little different. 
it basically transforms your mind and your heart, and that has implications for every area of your life. So let's get one thing out of the way. One of my teasers this week was, does the Bible teach that there is a separation between church and state? Not inside you and me. In other words, the transformation that we undergo affects every external relationship that we have. And so you can't say, well, I'm a Christian over here, but in the sphere of government, I no longer think in a transformed way. So in that sense, and we'll talk about another sense of that saying, in that sense, that makes that's a completely nonsensical thing to say to a Christian. You cannot be a transformed individual here and not take that into the public square. That kind of schizophrenia just doesn't exist. So for Christian, you're Christian all the time, but it does affect how we interact. Let me do a little bit of contextual setting first of what's going on at this time. I am not setting the context to tell you Romans 13 only applies to what was going on at the time. The reason I want to set the contextual setting is so that you will see how eerily similar it is to our world today. So let's look at the world in 57 AD. This is the Mediterranean. This is the Roman world. If you notice, I'm just going to draw on this, that basically the outer line is the extent of the Roman Empire. It is basically covering the known world in the Middle East. So the Roman Empire is the unquestioned and unquestionable authority in the Middle East at the time. These colors on here, by the way, it just happens to be a great little map, but these colors tell you the spread of Christianity through the first and second century. If I were showing you, by the way, a map of the spread of Islam in the first 200 years of its existence, I'd be showing you a record of conquests. When it says the spread of Christianity, those didn't become Christian countries. They didn't get uh, conquered. There wasn't anything going on like that. This is just where the influence of one by one transformed people, transformed culture as well. There's a powerful lesson in that for us too. So what's going on in the Roman Empire that Paul is writing this letter, really long letter, to Christians in Rome? Hasn't met them, but wants to talk to them about this good news and what it means. Well, they're in Rome. They're literally in the center of the power of Rome. And needless to say, they're not exactly towing the company line. I mean, Christianity is certainly not the religion of the Roman Empire. And the idea that there is one Lord is definitely not the religion of the Roman Empire. Roman Empire didn't matter how many gods you had as long as you also knew that Roma was a goddess, the, the spirit of Rome, and the emperor was a god. And if you were willing to worship the emperor, you can worship anybody else that you want to. Well, here's the catch. Christians weren't. In fact, Christians had a very subversive point of view to the Roman world. So a couple of things happened when people became Christians. One of the reasons, by the way, People think that Paul probably talked about this is the whole idea of government relations with its citizens was a big deal. I mean, nobody was going to overthrow the Roman government, but taxes, this is where I want you to understand what's happening in the Bible is happening in real historical, socio-political, economic history. It's people like you and me living out our faith in sometimes difficult but real circumstances. 
So in Rome at this time, there's a Roman historian named Tacitus, and I'm going to read you uh, what he says about this. He's talking about a big, this is a big controversy in the Roman Empire at the time. He says, in this year, it was 57 or 58 AD, the exact same time this letter is written, 57, 58 AD. In this year, there were persistent public complaints against the companies farming indirect taxes from the government. In other words, tax collectors and the way taxes were collected. Now, those of you that have heard lectures uh, from the New Testament, you understand that the Roman system of collecting taxes was, let's just say, very extortionate. Well, even in Rome, there were complaints from Romans about the tax collecting system. So Nero, by the way, Nero became emperor in 54, dies, kills himself in 68, but he becomes emperor in 54, and for the first few years, he's a really good guy. They really like him. And so Nero thought about, hey, I'm a god, I can do what I want to do, maybe we just won't do taxes. Well, the Senate talked him out of that really quickly and said, you quit doing taxes, you may be a god, but you still have to eat. So anyway, he didn't get rid of taxes, but he tried to do a little reform. Well, one of the things you're going to see in Romans chapter 13 is the idea of Christians pay taxes to whom you owe taxes. In other words, it's going to talk about how to relate to the government, but one of the reasons that's in there is it was a big deal at the time. Well, it's still a big deal. I mean, the idea of taxation is, is, has always been a big deal. The other thing that's going on at the time is when people become Christians, they believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, that meant a lot in those days. It means a lot now, and that means Jesus is my master. It's no longer my desires in life, it's your desires in life. There is a radical transformation as a result of the gospel. We die to ourselves, as Romans said earlier in the book. We are raised to walk in newness of life. We were bought with a price. We belong to God, not only as slaves, but also as children in the family. It's, a, it's just an unbelievable good news. But the point is, you only have one Lord. That's a problem, because in the Roman Empire, there's only one Lord, and his name is Caesar. So what was happening with some new Christians, people became Christian, they said, I now believe that. That changes everything. That's true. And some of them were saying, in fact, we don't worship Caesar. That's true. In fact, we don't even obey the laws anymore. We live in a new kingdom. We live in a new, uh, king the kingdom of God. We're no longer uh, citizens of Rome. In fact, none of these laws affect us at all. Now, they weren't doing anything bad. They were simply being very openly rebellious against the current governments. And so, and this is what the church fathers thought was one, another one of the reasons that Paul wrote was to say, look, I need to help you understand that that is all true and it will happen in time, but let that be God's time, not your and my time. And so these things are written to help people kind of understand. You can see that when I... Uh, show you this passage from Philippians. This is also a letter Paul wrote. He said, as I have told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. These are people that have not been transformed by the message of the gospel. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a sense as Christians that our number one allegiance, in fact, our only real allegiance is to God, that our real eternal citizenship is in the kingdom or the nation of God or the family of God. So the question naturally comes up, well, what then about what do we owe and how do we interact with these earthly authorities and governments, some of them good, some of them bad. And that's also why Paul is writing this. So there's a little just contextual background. If you think about it, we have those exact same issues today. What is our relationship with the government in the United States or in North Korea or in Russia or in Great Britain or wherever it may be? What's our relationship with those secular authorities given that only God's law is truly binding on us. What does God want us to do? Well, let's take a look. Romans chapter 13. This is what uh, Romans, this is the, probably the most famous passage that deals with this subject. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Now that's a surprise. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do good to you. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of your conscience. In other words, this is my conscience, a clean conscience toward God. Remember, Schreiner said, we show our commitment to God by living out the way he wants us to live in relationship, even with governmental authorities. This is also why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants who give full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. So I'd like to draw four implications from this passage, and we'll look into it a little bit more. But number one, the most obvious implication is our default posture towards a government is voluntary submission to governmental authority. And that is true in two ways. Number one, when it says that God has established governments, it means that in a couple of ways. One way is simply, if you don't have some kind of uh, secular civic authority, you basically have what's called a state of nature, and that is every, everybody for himself. Well, that's not good for anyone. That kind of chaos is uh, typically people devolve into a very chaotic situation without some kind of authority, some kind of accountability. You know that as Americans, we have a very distinct tradition of realizing that humans, our founders, whether you want to say they're Christians or deists or whatever, they very much believe in a Christian anthropology. What I mean by that is the nature of man, they understood that in a very biblical way, and that is left to our own devices, we will do bad things. And so government, one of its roles is basically to provide checks on our behavior so that we as a community can thrive together. And so there's a sense in which God has instituted earthly authorities so that we can all thrive. 
So there's a, that's the, one of the senses in that God has instituted governments. He's instituted the idea of government so that we can all thrive. Now, whether or not God has instituted a specific government is an interesting question, and I'm sure that will come up at some point. But for me, I want to stick for the moment with this one thing. Our default posture towards earthly authority is voluntary submission. Obviously not in every circumstance, and that this passage is going to get into that a little bit. Uh, let me show you another passage. Uh, this is a different writer. This is the Apostle Peter. He's writing at a little bit different time, but listen to what he says. You're going to hear the exact same idea here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Now, that's an interesting little twist. To every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. Why? To punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. So what is he saying? He's saying the exact same thing. Our default posture towards governmental authorities is to voluntarily submit. Why? And this is interesting. Do we submit because they're good governments? He says, no, you submit for the Lord's sake to every authority not because they're necessarily good or they do it the way I want it done, but that that's our default posture. Second thing that I would observe out of this passage is government has a legitimate function. So first, our default posture is submission, voluntary submission. And secondly, governments have a legitimate function. Look at this. He says, basically, government is God's servant to do you good, for you to thrive. In other words, it says, uh, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, it's their job to punish them. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to punish the wrongdoer. He is God's servant to commend those who do right. So there's an interesting second observation about governments in general is this, is they have God-given specific functions. And their function is to provide for human flourishing by punishing those who do wrong and commending those who do right. So you have the idea that we should submit to authority and authority also has uh, a sense of what is owed to other people. Third observation, I know I'm kind of moving through these quickly, but uh, I'm sure you will have a few questions. I want to make sure we leave time for that. Um, so, first, default is submission, government has a legitimate function, and then thirdly, government has boundaries. There is a boundary to the authority that God has given to governments. I'll give you a great example. I want to talk about this passage because it's probably one of the most misused passages in the Bible. Well, at least in the top ten. So, here's a, an incident in the life of Jesus. So, the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap Jesus in what he was saying. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, and they said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. That should make you worry. That's called flattery. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that is actually a really bright question if you want to burn Jesus. 
Because if Jesus says, no, it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar, then they're just going to go report him to Caesar. Guess what they do to people that say, no, I won't pay taxes? You guessed it. They're dead. So, but if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to lose popularity with the people because nobody liked being taxed by the Romans. I mean, think about it. It's like if you got taxed with our MAPS city sales tax and all that money got used to build stuff in Baltimore, you would grumble. You'd say, wait a minute, why are you taking our money and you're building stuff in Baltimore? We want it built here. And the Romans said, you got to be kidding me. I need a new palace, the emperor says. You know? And so you guys just pay the taxes and, uh, and we're going to impoverish your world. You're not going to get new roads. Just patch those potholes, right? We're going to have golden roads in Rome. That's what was happening. So people resented that. And so if Jesus says, yeah, you can pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to lose popularity. That also serves the Pharisees' purposes. This is actually a really shrewd question. Jesus, however, is even more shrewd. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Why don't you show me the coin used for paying the tax? And so they brought him a denarius, and he asked them whose portrait is on this and whose inscription. He said, Caesar's. You see, coins were the original billboards. If you were the emperor, when you minted the coins, you put your beautiful head on there, right? And you put some good PR about what a wonderful guy you were and what all the good stuff you had done and how powerful and majestic your kingdom was. And so always had a face on the coin. By the way, Jewish coins never had a face on them. So he says, so whose picture's on there? He goes, Caesar. He said, then give Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. Now, this is really interesting because typically how we want to uh, talk about this is we want to say, first of all, it's a clever answer. And he basically got off the horns of the dilemma and just puzzled the Pharisees. They're like, man, what do you do with that? We, I thought we had him. How did he slip out of that? Right? So that's one sense. The other sense, though, is a lot of people look at this and they say, oh, what Jesus was saying is spiritual things belong to God, but all the political, secular things belong to this world. That's not even slightly what he is saying. If that is true, then none of the gospel is true. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. There's not one Lord of your spiritual life and one Lord of your secular life, your physical life. The gospel doesn't admit of a transformation of your mind on Sundays and flip it back to regular on Monday through Friday. There's nothing in the New Testament, teaching of Jesus, nothing that would support that idea. I mean, it's pretty obvious he's not saying, hey, I'm just a spiritual leader, right? What he's saying is really, really clever. In other words, if you're Jesus Christ, what belongs to Caesar? Nothing belongs to Caesar except what God has given to Caesar. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what Romans 13 is saying. God established these. Think about Jesus and Pontius Pilate. So near the end of his life, they finally do get him 
uh, in trouble, and he goes before the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. Well, you know Pontius Pilate doesn't want to crucify him, but he's got a political problem with the Jews, and he thinks, eh, I'll crucify him, and then I'll be good with the Jews. So he's talking to Jesus. This is one of the most brilliant, brilliant uh, dialogues in the entire New Testament. So John records this. So Pilate talks to Jesus, and he says, uh, are you a king? And uh, Jesus says, so you say. He goes, who am I? I'm not a Jew. What do these people have against you? He said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, my kingdom encompasses everything. You're going to read that in Romans 8. In other words, even creation is going to bow before Jesus Christ. And so Pilate says to him, and this is so brilliant because Pilate thinks he's in charge, but by the time you finish reading this, you realize, no, Jesus isn't on trial. Pilate's on trial. And so Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize I have the authority to let you go or to kill you? And Jesus says, that's a clever little thought there, you cute little man. I didn't actually say that, but it's probably implied in the text. What he says is, you have no authority whatsoever except what God has given you. In other words, he says, I know you think you're in charge, but you actually have no authority except what God allows you to have. So I want you to put all that together and you see Romans chapter 13. And so Jesus isn't saying, we're gonna split the world in two. He's gonna say, it's got his picture on it. Why don't you give that to him? But all your allegiance goes to me because he's only there because I allow him to be there. Does that make sense? So I really don't want us to misunderstand this. This is a very, very subversive thing for Jesus to be saying. Well, let me pause and we'll take a couple questions. So is this passage saying that Christians who live in North Korea should submit to their government? Great question. Usually doesn't come in the form of North Korea, but let's just go with North Korea. That's a good question. So should Christians who live in North Korea submit to their government? The basic answer is yeah, let's just go through the three things that we know from this passage. Number one, our basic default posture is voluntary submission to the government. So yes. Point number two, though, governments have a legitimate purpose that is God-given. And you, it may be that the government is not fulfilling its legitimate purpose. It is oppressing people. And then third, Governments have a limit on their God-given authority. Now, their rulers don't think they have any limit. Caesar didn't think he had any limits. Kim Jong-un thinks he's a god. I mean, he's literally a modern-day Caesar, right? So, I mean, it's exactly the same situation. So, yes, we should do exactly what Paul is saying, and that is submit to the authorities. Now, will you do something that violates God's command? Think about uh, Peter and John in the book of Acts. Early in the book of Acts, they're called in by the Jewish authorities, and they said, listen, you got to quit talking about Jesus Christ, and just for good measure, we're going to beat the tar out of you. So they beat the tar out of him, and they said, let that be a lesson. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they quite respectfully said, you yourself can judge whether it is right to obey you in this or to obey God. You know, as for us, we'll need to obey God in this. I mean, wow, that's pretty impressive. In other words, they understand you actually don't have God-given authority to keep us from doing this. Let me give you an example in the United States. 
For example, suppose, God forbid that it should ever happen, but just pretend for a moment that if someone who was in this country illegally comes to the door of your house and they've been beaten up or shot or whatever, if there was a law that says you cannot bandage their wounds, and I'm I'm making a big hypothetical here, right? But I I just want to make this point. Then you would say, well, with all due respect, I'm going to need to do this. And if you need to punish me, then by all means punish me, but I'm going to do this. In North Korea, I'm going to share my faith. Now, I may not stand on the street corner where you can shoot me quickly, but I will risk death to go share my faith. So our default position is submission. Governments have a legitimate function, and governments have limits on their God-given authority. So hopefully that kind of helps us navigate not only North Korea, but here as well. In this passage, when it refers to authority, does that apply to church leaders as well? When it talks about authority, does that also uh, apply to church leaders? Very good question. They're actually, this passage contemplates earthly governmental authorities. You could argue, maybe, that it contemplates something like the Catholic Church. And I don't mean to be offensive, but the Catholic Church, historically speaking, and now, actually operates in a kind of a similar manner. It doesn't operate geographically anymore, but it operates in a, quote, quasi-governmental matter. I know the Catholics are going to dispute that, but bottom line is you have a supreme authority whom you will obey, at least within the bounds of their authority, and the Pope in that case. But generally speaking, this contemplates governments. There are other passages in the New Testament that talk about giving honor and respect to those who have been charged by God not to rule over you, but to lead you. There's an interesting thing. The word for leaders in the church, there are basically three words. One is the overriding word. You have the idea of elders or uh, uh, Episcopal, uh, but anyway, bottom line, elders. So you have this idea of elders who are shepherding a flock, not lording it over them. In fact, they're they're instructed. You're not here to lord this over anybody. You're over here to take responsibility for the spiritual health of this congregation. But the overriding word for church leaders is shepherd. The word we translate pastor in the Greek language is literally the word shepherd. So the biblical idea of authority is of shepherding, not ruling. So that's a great question. I don't think this passage contemplates authority figures in the church, and the passages that do contemplate it in the, in the uh, model of shepherding rather than ruling. Okay? All right. So we've got three ideas uh, here. One is default is submission, government has a legitimate function, and government has boundaries. The last thing is, I want to point out the fourth idea, is that governments are accountable to God, not just people. If you look at this, it says he is God's servant. I know we talked about this for a minute, but he is God's servant. And so it's necessary to submit to the authorities. And so the idea there is, again, the authorities are God's servants. 
who give their full time to governing. The strong implication there is, is if they are indeed servants of God, then they need to do what God has charged them to do, their legitimate function, and they need to stay within their legitimate realm. So Caesar is not necessarily punishing the wrongdoer and commending those who are good. It was an unjust government. Second thing Caesar was doing is he was claiming things that were God's. He went far beyond his legitimate scope, which is help you flourish, and I have the authority to do it. I'm serving God to help this nation move forward. You actually see that sometimes. I would argue, by and large, I know you could probably make a pretty strong argument against me on this for the time being, but by and large, I think that's what the United States has been, by and large, is serving, especially you think of our founders, they were not professional politicians, they would come serve and then they'd go back to the farm. The point was they were taking on a responsibility to help this group of people thrive by exercising authority to basically commend those who are good and punish those who are wrong and help us live harmoniously. Nobody does that perfectly, but some governments obviously go far beyond that. So those governments are accountable to God. This is not unusual in the scriptures. For example, I think, of, I think of two passages every time I teach, and one of them is this, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should be teachers, for we shall be judged by a harsher standard. That scares me to death. If it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, that would be hopeless for me. But the point is, God expects more from certain people. Think of the parable of the talents. He's not going to reward uh, the talents any differently, but if you've been given five talents, he expects you to use the gifts. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. That's why this congregation, Crossings Church, we feel an obligation to go be powerfully active in the kingdom of God in this world, not because we're special, but because God has given us the means to do so. And so the same thing is true for people who do evil. In other words, if we're accountable to God, particularly, for example, as teachers, take it very seriously not to teach you things that are wrong, that will mislead you, that will take you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are strict penalties for that. There's a harsh judgment. Same is true for those governments. So there is this sense of governments being accountable. Uh, N.T. Wright really puts, frames this up really well because one of the arguments from a simplistic reading of Romans 13 is, well, I guess that means God's okay with totalitarian governments. Guess he was okay with Hitler. Guess he's okay with Kim Jong-un. Wright really gets this correct in the sense he says, Romans 13 constitutes a severe demotion of arrogant and self-divinizing rulers. In other words, I'm God, I'm going to have uh, impact on all of your life. It is an undermining of totalitarianism, not a reinforcement of it. By implication, if the rulers themselves are given the task of judging the wicked people within their sphere of authority, they themselves will be judged by the God who set them up. In other words, Romans 13 actually undercuts totalitarian governments. Think about it. Should we submit? Yes, within what constraints? This government has been charged with specific responsibilities 
what makes it a just, legitimate government. It has specific sphere. This is our third rule. It has specific limits over what it has authority. And then fourth, God will hold those governments accountable. You see this in the Old Testament a lot. God will use unjust governments for his purpose, but he will also execute judgment on unjust governments. So the idea of, of uh, totalitarianism and saying, well, I guess if you're a Christian, you need to cooperate with Adolf Hitler. Well, the answer to that is, of course not. Why? Because this is clearly outside the scope of what God has authorized you to do. Now, I'm not saying you take up arms and you go rebel because your government exceeded its authority when it uh, changed your parking regulations. But when you see something that is totalitarian, at that point, we must refuse to obey. Great example of this is 1930s Germany. Karl Barth, a famous theologian in the 20th century, wrote strongly against some theologians and pastors who were in 1930s Germany. By the way, Hitler was wildly popular. You know that, right? I mean, you look back at him and you say, what a monster, no doubt but nobody saw that monster for a while. He was wildly popular and wildly successful, and not just in Germany. So in that time period, there was a lot of pressure to say, how can we support this guy, even though, yeah, he's not treating the Jews very well, and yeah, he's kind of taking away some things. Oh, yeah, we did invade that country and kill a bunch of people. And sometimes people looked at Romans 13, read it, not just simplistically, I mean, it's just criminally simplistic and said, well, he's the government, we got to support him. It fails to understand that governments have legitimate function, governments have boundaries, and God will execute judgment on that government. And so what Karl Barth said is, I cannot cooperate with this. You can put me in jail if you want to. You can kill me if you want to, which happened to a lot of Christians, by the way. You can send me to the concentration camp if you want to, but no, I, I can't do that. That's outside your legitimate scope and my allegiance is to God. But if it's within your scope, then yes, I will pay my taxes, but I will not go do those things. Does that make sense? That, you see that theme run through government, and I hope that helps us clear it up a little bit. Is Our default is submission, but God has set some parameters in what's a just government, what its scope of authority is, and he has said, I will also judge that. Question? Yes. In the case of the Christian cake baker? Yeah. If the government Which one? First one time around or second time around? <laughs> Those of you that have been following the Christian cake baker is there are people after that guy again. But anyway. So had they ruled against him, mm -hmm. what would have been his obligation? Yeah, great question. It actually gets bigger than that, uh, by the way. So the question is, the Christian cake baker, let's suppose for a moment that the Supreme Court had ruled against him and said, if you want to be a cake baker, you're going to bake these cakes. Make us, let's up the ante just a little bit. Think about the Hobby Lobby case. So Hobby Lobby is basically being tried saying, if you will not pay for abortifacients, in other words, abortion-inducing drugs, basically, and we're not going to acknowledge that you have any right under the law to do that, therefore you must do it, well, now they face a big thing. For the cake baker, it may be, then I, I can't bake cakes here anymore, and I'll go dig ditches, or I'll go do something else. Hobby Lobby, that was going to put a lot of people out of work. That's why that was a big deal. But I think that's probably what would have happened. 
is we will submit within the bounds of the law. We're going to appeal. We're going to take advantage of our judicial system because we can. There are rights as a citizen. But when push comes to shove, I think that guy says basically, well, my government says I have to and I can in good conscience do that. I guess in this country, I will not be baking cakes anymore. That's what you see happening. Is it right? Oh, heavens no. Will there be judgment for that? Absolutely, there will be judgment for that. So I think that's the way you tend to see Christians throughout history responding to that is, I can no longer in good conscience do that, and therefore I'll do something else. You say, wow, that's terrible. What if he's poor? And Jesus says, what if he's poor? You understand what I'm saying? Romans 12, 2. Is the most important thing in your life not being poor? Well, if so, we have a problem, right? We actually don't have a problem with the government now. we got a problem with God because I just told him, you do what you want with me. My life is yours, and I'll be yours for eternity. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you believe that? If you don't, fine, bake the cakes. But if you're Christian, if I believe this, then okay, I won't bake cakes. And maybe I won't have as much money. And maybe I won't have as nice a car. And Jesus said, that's fine. I got more treasure than you can imagine waiting for you in heaven. This is where the rubber meets the road for Christians. What do I really believe? But that's a great question, and that has typically been the Christian uh, response to that, is I can in good conscience do what you're, you're telling me to do, so I simply will not. You know, I just won't bake those cakes. Now, perhaps you might say, I'll keep baking cakes till you come put me in jail. Okay, you could do that, or you could say, well, I guess we'll be shutting down the cake shop. I mean, that's a matter of, of individual opinion, but the idea is, well, I cannot do that. And so you don't. So it'll be interesting to see. Now, for those of us in America, since we can advocate for this, I think we should advocate. I think we should vote. I think we should try to elect people that will, and here's the interesting thing. I don't want you to try to elect people that agree with you on everything. Really want to try to elect people who do this. Be God's servant to do good and to help us thrive to punish evil and reward good and be a just governor. Now, that may mean I prefer that you have a biblical worldview, but at the end of the day, I'm not voting. I mean, if I vote for somebody who will just make me happy, how's that any different than anybody else? In other words, I think we as Christians have a really good idea of what good government should look like. Could we vote for a non-Christian? Yes. Which non-Christian? The one that will do that. You see what I'm saying? That's what God appointed governments to do. And so I think that we should, we should use every lawful mechanism at our disposal to do it. If we lived in North Korea, you know what that would be? Nada. But you live in America, what can you do? Well, you can write, you can vote, you can advocate, always respectfully, of course, but we can go express our opinions for what's not just good for me, what's good for this country. That alone will set us apart in the partisan wars. So I think it's, this is really useful to me to understand God's given some legitimate functions. He's put some legitimate boundaries around it. And then he also is going to judge that. I'll give you one other uh, passage here. He goes on, and this sounds like it has, doesn't have anything to do with government, but it kind of does because we're in a section where how do I relate to governments? How do I relate to each other, other people? He says, let me sum this up a little bit. Let no debt remain outstanding. Remember, he just said, 
pay taxes to whom you owe taxes, honor to whom you owe honor, respect to whom you owe respect. He says, and by the way, in general, let no debt, owe nobody anything except your always continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. That's just a few of the Ten Commandments. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is really interesting, and I want to bring it back a little bit to the government because this contemplates, I want to give you the idea of how, I want to divide the world into three kinds of people, religiously. You have secular-minded people. No God necessarily, certainly no God that, uh, to whom I owe any obedience or allegiance. And so here I am in the world. Well, if you think about it, the prevailing worldview of modern humanistic secular people is a very Darwinian point of view. You're not special. We all got here because all of our relatives were apes at one time. Some of mine still are. But all of our relatives, you know, were simians at some point in time, right? And so that's how we got here. Here's the interesting question on how to get along with one another. And this is going to explain some of the vitriol in our politics. I mean, this is not too far a reach. You think about this for a minute. What is one animal owe to another animal? What does one animal owe to another animal? Do you go to your dog and say, you are morally wrong for chasing that cat? What an absurd thing to say. What does one animal owe another animal? That's modern secular humanism. I mean, you strip away all the good wording, that's really what it is. And you know what you owe to somebody else? Nothing. You owe get what you can get. Does that sound like our political environment? Does that sound like North Korea? It does indeed. What do you owe somebody else? Fundamentally nothing. I owe myself to get what I can get. That's a secular mindset. And you say, oh, I know people that are nicer than that. I know, they're just not honest because that's what they believe. But then they're religious people. Religious people says, no, that's not true, Terry. There is accountability in the universe. There may be a God, whatever. If you're religious, you figure, well, there's some kind of God somewhere. I mean, whether it's uh, Buddhism or whether it's Hinduism or some forms of Christianity. I'm a religious person. I believe in that. What do you owe somebody else? Whatever is just and fair. In other words, I owe you whatever is lawful. Ethics in that environment, ethics in the secular environment comes down to power. Watch and see. It naked power. In other words, if I can get the Supreme Court to say that everybody has to salute when Terry walks by, that's my morality right there. Actually, I don't care if you salute or not. But bottom line is power, and that's what you see playing itself out, is I'm going to force you, I'm going to coerce you to do it. That's a secular ethic. Well, religious people don't have that kind of ethic. They go, no, no, wait, wait, wait. We need some fairness here. There's got to be laws. There's got to be rules. Whatever's lawful is a good thing to do. Now, that's an interesting ethic, isn't it? You see that in our culture as well. What makes Christ followers truly unique is love is the basis for our ethic. What a, an absurd thing. If you take a secular person, you even take a religious person, they're going to go, what? I have a debt to love other people? Why? What have they ever done for me? And why would I love somebody if I don't have to, according to the law? Do you understand how absolutely unique this is? So what you're seeing happening is, is God saying, I want you to act in a very unique way toward governments. 
I want you to, your basic posture to be submit voluntarily. Now, I've given them a just function. I've limited their authority. And so obviously you will obey me outside their authority, but within their authority, then by all means, obey them. You go, wow, God, I thought, thought uh, that's, that's unusual. You want me to cooperate with these non-believers? He said, yes, that's for our common good. I've allowed them to be uh, in authority. Well, what do I want to do about everybody else? You owe them to love them. Really? Why? Because I loved you. That is what is so unique about this. The Christian ethic in every respect is that whole transformation of your mind. Nobody thinks like you think. No one thinks like Christ followers think because it is truly revolutionary. Keller says this. He says, Paul refuses to pit love and law against each other. The obedient thing is the loving thing. The loving thing is the obedient thing. If we want to love others, we will obey God's commands. That's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 14, John chapter 15. He says, if you love me, obey my commands. There's no difference between obeying and loving. And so we obey our God by loving one another. We obey our God by submitting to the reasonable jurisdiction of a government, whether I like it or not, whether I think my taxes are too high or not, I'm still going to be submissive. I'm hoping this makes sense. I think I'm getting a little preachy here, but I want you to see the thread of how differently this looks at the world. Really radically different rationale. Question? So if love is the fulfillment, if love is the fulfillment of the law, shouldn't we bake the cakes in love as opposed to judging the behavior of the cake orderer? Good question. If love is fulfillment of the law, then shouldn't we bake the cake instead of uh, saying, I can't in good conscience bake the cake? Very interesting question. And the differences between a secular idea of what love is and a Christian idea of what love is. Loving is obeying God. We tend to think loving is doing whatever somebody else wants to do. Oh, there's no way in the world Christians think that's what love is. Psychologists call that what it is. It's called enabling people, right? You, it's not loving to give someone what they want. If that were the case, my kids would have lost their baby teeth in a week. They would have been eating candy 24-7. You go, well, come on, Terry. If you really love them, you're going to need to do what's right. That's Christian love. That's agape love, doing what is good for people. So... If by that logic, though, is that, well, if I love you, I'll do what you want. Well, welcome to the Holocaust, right? In other words, you want me to go oppress these Jewish people and put them in shackles and take them off uh, to the concentration camp? Okay, I'll do that. Now, that is outside the legitimate scope. It's claiming uh, this idea of lordship over what God has asked us to do. In failing to bake the cake, or in failing to take the Jewish person and put them, shackle them and put them in a concentration camp, am I judging that person? No, I am not. God judges that person. I simply, in good conscience, will not do that. God will judge the authority that is locking those Jews up. God will judge the person who's living in a way contrary to them, not me. But to say that if I do anything you don't like that's judging you, that's a very worldly way to think about it, and you just look around and you will see the disaster that that is. That's not love in a Christian sense. Do what is good for people. Do what builds up. Do what is obedient to God. 
That's actually loving. So, great question. I want to make one final point on this. I want you, and this is the encouraging part, okay? I could give you a dozen examples of this, but let's just stick with the, with the uh, Roman Empire. So, the Roman Empire was not a very just government in most cases, and the Roman Empire fell. God judged them temporally. He will also judge people eternally. But there was a sense of God's judgment temporally on them. Think Egypt and the Exodus. Think the Babylonians and the exile. Over and over and over again in history, you see God doing what he said. I will judge these governments. But he is able to use even unjust governments. Think about the Roman Empire. It's not a godly government. Oh, heavens, Caesar didn't ever acknowledge God. Caesar thought he was God. And yet, the fact that Rome unified the world, the fact that you have what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that you have roads built everywhere, God used the Roman Empire to pave the way for the perfect time for the Messiah to come. Jesus Christ came in that environment and the world was prepared for it. Did anybody try to prepare the world? Well, Caesar certainly wasn't preparing the world for it. Herod tried to kill Jesus and killed a bunch of babies trying to get him when he was little. No, nobody's trying to do this. And so here's the really powerful point I want you to think about. Philosophically, then I want to bring it right down to your and my life. All of history, every authority in this world bends and ultimately bows to God's will. Every force in history, every authority, every government bends to God's will, whether they desire to or not. God, Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God can use even evil governments to do good. Simple example, there are many pastors in North Korea, there are many pastors in China who have been killed for their faith and yet, Christianity is exploding in those places. In other words, God said, if you're willing to follow me, no matter what, if you're willing to be poor, if you're willing to be killed, you have eternity with me. But son, this is what I need you to do. And guess what? What did he do? He uses that to save so many souls. God is able to use even unjust governments for his purpose. So that's the philosophy. Here's where the rubber hits the road. When you face difficulties in your life, and you go, I don't see how any good comes out of this. You think, wait a minute, all of history tells me God is able to make good come out of something that I can see nothing good. You can live with confidence, you can live with faith that because of what Jesus Christ did, God is in control of my life, not my negative circumstances. And that doesn't mean it'll work out the way I want, it just means in the end, you win. You can't lose. You can't be defeated. Nothing, Romans 8, can separate you from the love of God. So God's sovereignty over all of history, even over bad governments, means he's also sovereign over every circumstance in your life. No matter what it is, God can work in that ultimately for your good. That's true love. That's what love really is. Sometimes I say, I just want you to make me happy. That's a worldly love. It doesn't work. It doesn't work with God, and God loves you too much to do that. 
just like you loved your children too much to let them eat candy 24-7. But it's a really powerful idea that God's sovereignty, even over governments, even over all of history, translate to your trial. So when you go to work this week and your boss is a jerk or something bad happens to you or you're in circumstances and you don't see the way out, I want you to really think about, you know what? God has done far greater things than this and he will be faithful to work in these circumstances too. So take that to heart and put it into practice this week. Next week, very interesting thing. How are Christians going to live with one another? Well, badly sometimes, but what's this supposed to look like, life in the church? There is a very, very unique answer in Romans chapter 14 and 15. So behave any way you want this week because next week we're going to have to change some things. I'll see you guys then. <laughs>